Welcome back to another episode of News Points on the Air, a production of the North American Division of Seventh-day Adventist. I'm your host, Milan Medley. I know more than our usual amount of time in between episodes has passed, but I promise this episode will be worth the wait. Our guest is Jacqueline Perlman, who is a nurse who contracted COVID-19 in April 2020. And this is back when our knowledge of the virus and its spread were limited in comparison to what we know and understand today. Jacqueline was also featured on May 16 in a special broadcast by the North American Division called, Is the COVID-19 Vaccine Trustworthy? A Biblical Conversation About Science. And if you missed that program, search NAD Adventist on YouTube and or Facebook to watch it in its entirety. Jacqueline is here with us today to tell us about her traumatic experience with the virus and how her faith has played a role in her long haul recovery. Hi, Jacqueline. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Milan, for having me. It's an honor and privilege to be here today. How long? Well, let's first start off um, for context of who you are and your profession. Um, how long have you been a nurse and what is your specialty? Well, I've been a nurse for a very long time. It seems like many, many years ago, I graduated from the Catholic University of America School of Nursing. I have been a nurse for about 25 years. Nice. Um, I started my career as a, a neonatal intensive care nurse, and I worked in um, different specialties of nursing. However, for the past 18 years, I have worked in utiliz utilization management as a UM nurse. What does that mean, utilization management? So what that means is I approve uh, a patient's stay in the hospital. Mm. Um, we deny if a patient does not meet uh, medical necessity criteria. You know, of course, we follow the Medicare guidelines. So there are very strict guidelines for admission to the hospital. So a lot of these things are done on the back end. Mm. Um, so basically, that's what I do. And then when a patient disagrees with a discharge date, they end up appealing the discharge. So I do a lot of work on the back end. I see. So, okay, you're on the back end, but let's go back to March-ish 2020 when the pandemic hit um, the United States and then around this area. When were you asked to come from the back end? Because in, in knowing your story, I know that um, you contracted uh, COVID-19 from work, but that's not going on in the back end. <laughs> when were you asked to go from the back end, from behind the scenes to help treat COVID-19 patients? So in my role as a UM nurse, while I do not provide bedside care, um, the model that the organization that I work for requires that in my role, I have a face-to-face -face interaction with all the members that are admitted um, at the hospital or the facility. So in the early months of 2020, um, you know, February, March, April, when there was news of COVID in the United States, 
we, I, was still going to the patient's bedsides and interacting with them without any PPE. Oh, wow. Because there wasn't that knowledge then that you or the providers needed to wear all of that, the N95s and the bunny suits. Is that what it's called when it's the head to toe? Correct. Correct. Yeah. There was fear of the COVID-19. There was talk of COVID-19. Patients were having symptoms of COVID-19, but we were walking around the facilities or, you know, and walking into patients' rooms without any proper PPE. Wow. So when did you suspect that you had contracted COVID-19? Um, you know, I actually had to go back and look at the dates. It hmm. was... Um, and I remember this very clearly. It was a Friday, but I had to go back and look at the date. It was Friday, April 24th. Wow. Um, I had showered after work and was uh, basically preparing to wind down before Sabbath started. After I had showered, you know, I noticed I could not warm up. I could not get warm at all. And my mm. daughter had gone and gotten me a heater and we sat next to one another, just cuddled up as we both were winding down. Um, and I had wrapped myself um, in several blankets with the heater next to me, and I still could not get warm. So wow. I thought maybe it was just that I was so worn down from, you know, a busy week that maybe my body was just not getting comfortable. I put on my earphones and uh, started listening to 3ABN Sabbath School, but I could not stay awake, and, and I ended up going to bed very early that evening. Now, I went to bed that evening and Sabbath morning um, when I woke up, I was 99.9% .9 sure that I had the COVID, but I did not want to alarm my family, especially my husband, because all we kept hearing in our home was, you know, how careful we need to be. And he wanted to make sure that he did not catch the COVID because he thought he surely would die if he caught it. So... I remember that Sabbath morning, it was April 25th, and I, I felt really awful. I was so cold, I could not get warm all night, and I experienced what they call bone-chilling cold. Um, that morning, Sabbath morning, my husband got up and he made me a cup of hot tea. And when he brought that tea to me, I could not smell or mm. taste it. So I knew then that that was a confirmation for me. Uh, what happened throughout that Sabbath, April And is that 8th, what you meant when you said that I was sure that I had it, but I was afraid to say it? Was it the loss of taste and smell that made you? That, that was like, this it. is it. That confirmed it. That confirmed it. it for me. Okay. Because even though I had, you know, I was, I was cold, I had the chills. I didn't know that I, I had the other symptoms until he brought me the cup of tea and I could not smell or taste it. And I knew that that was, you know, one of the symptoms of, that was definitely a symptom of COVID-19. And why so, did your husband think if he caught it, he would, it would be uh, fatal for him? So, you know, back then, and, and again, I, I, I make it very clear that when I got it, I got it very early on where yeah. really not much was known about COVID and what mm -hmm. was out there in, you know, in the news or in the science world was that, it was detrimental to certain groups mm. or, or people with, with certain comorbidities. High risk. Yeah. Yes. 
And um, yeah, and my husband being African American and in a certain age range with certain mm -hmm. comorbidities, that was, you know, a, a huge concern for him. Got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So Sabbath morning, you had the tea, you couldn't taste and smell. Correct. And then, you know, uh, throughout the Sabbath, the symptoms kept getting worse. Um, and, and I know I've talked about it before where I've said that I, for one, experienced all the COVID-19 symptoms where I had the chills, I had fever that day, and all day um, Sabbath, my fever hovered around 101 to 103. Mm. I had the worst body ache, uh, muscle ache. I had excruciating headache, and I, I, I'm one that has that really does not get headaches on a normal basis. And so this headache was something that I had never experienced before. Wow. And I have the only way for me to describe it, and I described it to many in the care team, that it felt like animals, you know, were, were just chewing my brain. Um, hmm. So that's the best way I could describe it. I also had nausea, vomiting. I uh, had diarrhea all day and mm. the shortness of breath started. So of course, loss of taste and smell and I couldn't eat anything all day. And the shortness of breath, you know, started. I, I would get up from my bed, go to the bathroom or walk to the kitchen and I just felt air hungry. So all those symptoms throughout the day, just, you know, just confirmed. That was all in one day? All in one day. All oh in my one goodness. Day. That sounds so miserable. I was thinking maybe this happened over a series of days. This is all one day. You're experiencing day. all these severe symptoms. Exactly, exactly. And it got so bad that I, I really was frightened for myself and, you know, mm -hmm. frightened of the unknown or what to expect that I took myself to the urgent care um, that okay. evening and, um, my husband at that time, you know, when I told him I was going to go to the urgent care, he asked me, he said, do you think you have the COVID? And, you know, the look of fear <laughs> on his face. Mm -hmm. And I said, yes, I, I think I have the COVID. And we decided that, you know, I would drive myself, but if anything, I would stop and call 911. Uh, and the reason we decided that I would drive myself was because um, we knew that, you know, he would not be allowed inside and it was only going to be me. And um, I didn't want him waiting in the car. So I mm. did decide to drive myself. I had taken Tylenol before I um, left the house and, and got to the urgent care. And um, when I got to the urgent care, I was discharged. I told them about my shortness of breath and I, I kept telling them that I was air hungry. But you know, they, they check your oxygen level. And at that time, my oxygen level was hovering between 95 and 96. And they said I was breathing okay. I didn't have any fever, but again, I had taken Tylenol before I got to the urgent care and they said that I looked fine and they were not alarmed. Um, even though I kept telling them that I was air hungry, um, they, Meaning they you me couldn't breathe while well, you couldn't breathe. take like deep breaths. Correct. Correct. Okay. And, um, I felt like I was not taking enough air you know, mm -hmm. and they told me that, you know, my vital signs were normal. 
and they asked to do a urine test. And I said, you know, I, I am a nurse. At that time, I did mm -hmm. say to them, I said, I am a nurse, and I know this urine um, test will come back contaminated, so uh, can we not do it? Um, but they insisted that I do the urine test, and of course, it came back positive, and um, they told me that I had a UTI, and that's why I was not feeling you know, my very best. And um, I was discharged a couple of hours later um, with a diagnosis of UTI. So when I got that diagnosis, wow. it was about, yeah, it was about 3 a.m. that morning. And I have to say this, there was a lot of fear even in the healthcare arena. Um, when I went to the urgent care, my vital signs were taken when I got there, but once they admitted me inside, um, nobody would come into my room, not even the nurses. So they came in, they hooked me up to the monitor. And of course it was, they would, they would look from outside the window and um, they said, oh, your heart rate is high. You know, um, are you sure you're breathing okay? But they didn't come and take my vital signs. They didn't take my temperature. And the only thing that they did was open the door and they passed the urine cup for me, um, for them to get a sample. And when the test came back positive, I got a phone call from the doctor on my, they made sure that I had my cell phone on. And um, they said to me that the doctor will call you. So when the test came back and it was positive, I got a call from the doctor and she said, you know, your urine test came back positive. You have UTI, so we're discharging you. They did not come and take my vital signs. So what happened when they discharged me, um, and this was about two or 3 a.m. In the, in the morning, by now we are into Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. um, I was discharged home. And as I drove home, I started having chills and I also started hallucinating. Oh, and goodness. when I started hallucinating, um, I was the only one on the road driving from Gaithersburg back home to Silver Spring. And as I was hallucinating, and I think I've shared this with um, several other churches that, you know, I, I, I felt this presence sitting on the front seat and it was kind of, the silhouette of my of my deceased mother and she kept telling me um or so i thought in my mind um drive drive this car into a tree so we can be together drive this car into a tree so we can be together you know i was so fearful that morning i rolled my windows down and i turned on my gaither playlist and what popped up was because he lives, I can face tomorrow. And you know, that just went on a replay the entire time I drove home from Gaithersburg to my home in Silver Spring. When I got home that morning, I, you know, I, I, I've said this over and over that I knew what I had was something just very, very different. This was very unusual. This was not flu. This was not UTI. I am not of that age where, you know, you would have to be concerned of urosepsis. So I, I knew that it wasn't what they told me I had. They had done a COVID test and told me that I would get, a re get the result in 24 hours and I would have to go home and wait for the result. So when I got home, I came downstairs, I wanted to isolate for my family and I did.
my husband came back, came downstairs Sunday morning to check on me. And he said, well, what happened? And I said, well, they, they, they didn't seem to think I had, um, COVID. They said I had the UTI and he said, well, that's, that's, that's a good thing if you don't have the COVID. And I said, yeah, that's a good thing. But I knew, I, I knew in my heart that I had COVID. Um, but I isolated, I checked my temperature um, that night when I got home, it was 103.4. And mind you, they had not checked my temperature before I left. So it was mm. 103.4. I took some Tylenol and um, you know, the next morning my husband came and we had that conversation. My condition that Sunday started worsening even more where I could not breathe. I could not breathe. I was so short of breath by Sunday evening. I, we were, we were frightened. I became so frightful that my husband called, um, pastor Esmond. And I think pastor Esmond also sent a word to the rest of the pastors at the and church. This is, he's on the pastoral staff of the Emmanuel Brinklow church in, uh, in Maryland for people Perfect. who are uh, unaware. Mm -hmm. Correct. Correct. Pastor Esmond, uh, FaceTimed, um, FaceTime me, Pastor Esmond and his wife. And after he prayed and he, he, you know, interceded before God on my behalf, he said to me, he said, um, I am not a doctor, Jacqueline, but don't you think you need to get checked out? I, I, I just could not breathe. I had become so short of breath. And I said, yes, mm -hmm. yes, I, I will. You know, I was trying, I was trying to, to talk and I said, I will but I'm going to wait on the COVID test, you know, being a nurse and knowing what was happening out there, I did not want to go to the hospital. And I said, I was going to try to fight this at home. Wow. So Sunday evening, it got really bad. And uh, after pastor Esmond prayed and he sent um, a message to the, to the rest of the pastoral team, I know everyone started praying for me Monday morning. I woke up and I got a text message and an email saying that I, was SARS COVID-19 negative. 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 So when I got that um, message, you know, I thought, okay, maybe my mind is just playing tricks on me. And for a while, I didn't say anything to my husband. I know he came downstairs and he was standing outside my door and he kept saying to me, you know, have you heard anything? Did you get your result? You know, and I said, no, no, I had to lie. And yes, I did lie. And I said, no, no, I didn't get, your, the, I didn't get my result. Is that your phone He's, ringing? I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's okay. And he, and he said to me, he said, um, are you sure? Because if they told you that you were supposed to get your result in 24 hours, you know, you should have gotten it by now. So by that afternoon, when he came back to check on me, I told him, I said, yes, I did get the result and I am uh, negative. And he looked puzzled for a second <laughs> and he said, are you sure you're negative? And I said, yes, I am negative. And then he stopped again and he said, well, you know, if you're negative, then that must be a good thing. And I said, yes, it must. But again, you know, my condition was worsening. I, I, I hadn't eaten anything. I had no taste. No if I smell. may ask, how did they collect the sample? Did they do a nose swap? They did, but I don't, uh, again, you know, I, I, I think it was so early on that I, I'm not even sure that people really knew how to collect the sample. 
and I will leave it at that. Yeah, I mean, just just listening to this from the you know from where we are now in May 2021, you know, it's just amazing how much Has we changed. know now. Yeah, it's changed. So just hearing how things were happening in March of 2020, it's just alarming. And then hearing how you were just your you were seemingly deteriorating. Um, you know, with your, it was hard to breathe and you were just getting worse and this fever is just a very scary time. And then to get a negative, um, reading. Yeah. That's just so interesting. Yeah. So, so you can understand how puzzled we were, you know, uh, we, we, we didn't know, we didn't know what to do next. And I think for me, after I got the negative test result, I was determined even more to stay at home. home. I said, Mm. okay, maybe I have the flu. Maybe it's all in my head, you know? Um, So I'm going to fight this at home. As bad as it is, I'm going to fight this at home. I don't have the COVID. So whatever it is, I will stay at home. But I knew something was not right with me. Mm -hmm. It was, you know, it was obvious something was not right with me. By Monday evening, um, I couldn't, I I really could not breathe. I had, my husband had to put pillows to position me to sit upright in bed so that I could breathe. And, you know, I had been hallucinating a lot and I had been seeing different things and I I got really scared um, being by myself downstairs. And I would tell my husband, leave all the lights on, you know, don't turn off any lights. So that Monday night, I sat upright And by Tuesday morning, I I wondered what happened to my husband because by 6 a.m. he would come and check on me. And two of my girlfriends had called me by 6.15 and they asked me if, you know, he had checked on me. And by this time I was really short of breath and I said, no, no. And they said, you know, we're going to call him to check on you. And I said, no. And I didn't realize till my husband came down at 8 o'clock that he was so concerned about me that he kept coming to check on me every half hour to an hour throughout the night that by the time the morning came around, he was exhausted. He was asleep. Yeah. You know, (laughs) but yeah. So he came down and he asked me, he said, did you apply lipstick? So I said, apply lipstick. And he said, yes. Did you apply lipstick? And you know, again, um, (laughs) I looked at him and, and he said to me, your lips are a perfect black. And I picked up my phone and I looked at my lips and he, my husband started, his lips started quivering, his face turned red. I think he was going to (laughs) cry. And he said, I think I'll call 911 for Oh, you. my goodness. And I said, no, um, don't call 911, because if you call 911, they're going to take me to the closest hospital. And I want you to promise me that you're going to take me to this particular hospital that I okay. want you to take me to. Okay. So he promised me that he would get me to that hospital, and he helped me up the stairs and when we got up the stairs he carried me to the back seat of the car of his car and when he he said that when he put me in the back seat of his car i slumped over and became unconscious 
Oh and my goodness. Yes, yes. And he said he broke every traffic rule that mm. there was uh, driving to get me to this hospital. But you know, Milan, when he, when he got on New Hampshire Avenue to get on 29 and turn into the Beltway, he said, you know, an ambulance appeared out of nowhere. You know, the ambulance had lights and sirens on. And I would not have believed him until uh, months after I came home from the hospital, we were out um, one day and he said, I wanna show you a video. And he showed me a video of this ambulance. And it was just this ambulance on the beltway. And he said, do you remember this? And I said, no, I said, I have no recollection of this. And he said, it was the day that I took you to the hospital. And he said, look at this ambulance with lights and sirens on. He said, I followed this ambulance right to that hospital. And this ambulance guided me right to the front door of the ER. Mm. When we got there to the ER, he said, he picked me up, got me out of the car. And he said to me, I need for you to walk and you are going to walk right to this door. So he helped me to the door and there were nurses, you know, yeah. about five or six feet away from me. And he asked them, he said, can I come in? And they said, no. But prior to me telling you about that um, aspect, I wanna go back. You know that ambulance that he followed showed up right there to the ER. And he said the crew got out, the EMS crew got out they opened the, the ambulance doors, there was nobody inside. He said, but there were people outside the, the hospital, outside the ER in white PPE, full PPE. He said, when the EMS crew got out, they went and started spraying the ambulance. And you know, I say that, that God had a will for me and he had a reason that I survived that I believe it was angels that guided that that ambulance right to the emergency room. Mm. So when I got to the emergency room, he um, helped me to the door and he did ask those nurses if he could come inside. Um, the nurses said no. And, and I remember him telling me, you know, just hold on to the wall, hold on to the wall and walk right to those nurses. And um, I did. I, he put my insurance card, he put my phone, mm -hmm. whatever else I needed in my sweater pocket. And he told me to walk on right to those um, nurses. And I did. I did. When I got to them, I collapsed. They put me in a wheelchair and one of them started taking my vital signs. And before they even finished taking the vital signs, the next thing I knew, um, they, 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 they ran with the wheelchair to the back. And in the back, um, I was told that my oxygen saturation was in the mid to high 60s. And um, the ER physician, you know, told and me. And what does that mean? That means exactly. that my oxygen saturation was very low. Um, 92 and above 92 to 100% is considered normal. And so my oxygen level was very, very low. Mm. Um, when when they when the ER physician and the nurses in the back started working on me I remember the ER physician saying that he was going to intubate me meaning you know 
put me on a ventilator, um, mm. I remember shaking my head no. And um, I, I kept telling him I did not want to be intubated, but I wanted them to do everything for me. I wanted to be aware of what was happening. I didn't want them to paralyze me. I didn't, I, I, I wanted to be aware. Um, so he did say to me that, you know, they were gonna flood me with oxygen. And if my oxygen saturations came up, then, you know, that would be okay. If not, he said he would have to call my husband. And by, by this time, you know, mm. I was very agitated. Mm -hmm. They were working on me. They couldn't get any lines on me. Um, so they worked on me for, for quite a bit. And when I became aware of what was happening, I was on um, 10 liters of oxygen. They had put in lines and um, they had done a COVID test. And it, the COVID test that they did was very different from the COVID test that I had done previously. I'm sure. Yes. And within an hour, I believe the test came back. And I remember the physician came in and he told me, he said, um, your COVID test came back positive and you are very very, very ill. He said, if you would have come even half hour later, um, your family would have been dealing with a very different scenario. Wow. You probably wouldn't, wouldn't have been able to decline getting the ventilator, they, you know, at that point, if you had come yeah. later. Correct. Correct. Okay. So that is, that's Tuesday after, so this is Tuesday the 28th, Tuesday the 28th of April. So this is three days or two or three days after you initially lost, you had all those symptoms Correct. that Sabbath afternoon. Correct. Wow. Wow. Yes. Okay. So you were admitted. Yes. And for how long? Okay. So he had this conversation with you. What was the next step? then um so, so the next step was i was going to be admitted and um all i could say was um save me i don't want to die you know i i don't want to die uh please save me and um the conversation was if we are going to save you then and you want everything done then that means that includes you know having to intubate you if if, if you get to that point. Mm. Um, and I did tell them that if I could not, you know, give them any instructions that they could call my um, husband because he knew what my wishes were. Mm. Um, so I was admitted that night. Um, and after they worked on me, you know, I actually, when I was admitted that first night, Tuesday night in the hospital, I was very comfortable. I was on oxygen. I felt like, um, I could breathe. I I actually felt pretty good. And I hmm. rested that night. I was able to go to sleep until I woke up the next morning. Mm. When I woke up the next morning, I said to myself, I, I don't think I'm going to be here very long. You know, I feel good. I think they're just going to wean the oxygen and I <laughs> should be stable enough to be discharged home. Um, of course, that was not what happened. Um, okay. I remember getting a call from one of the nurses who did pretty much what I do, mm -hmm. one of my colleagues. And she said to me, um, 
She said, unfortunately, I can't come to the bedside to see you, but I'm very distressed to, to you know, know that you are in the hospital. And I would like to let you know that we are looking at discharging you tomorrow. And this was one of my colleagues. And I said, I understand that you're doing your job. I mean, I do this too. And, and you know, we bear um, difficult news to patients. And I said, but are you sure that I am stable enough to be discharged tomorrow? And she said, yes, you are. Uh, we had our rounds and uh, we feel that you're stable enough to be discharged tomorrow. So I said, okay. Oh my goodness. I am so stressed, Jacqueline. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. So uh, I said, okay. And, um, you know, the, the, I knew a lot of the physicians that were there and a lot of the physicians that were assigned to my care, but the chief um, physician uh, was or is a friend and um, he showed up, well, he showed up in the ER just before I was going to be admitted and he was in full PPE and he walked into my room. I'm backing up a little bit. He walked into my room my, in, in, the, in the ER and he said to me, he said, Jacqueline, do you remember me? And I looked at him and I could not, you know, I, I could not recall. I had just been through this traumatic um, experience and I was there in the ER. I looked at him, he had full PPE on. And I said, oh, yes, no, I, I, hmm. I, I don't know, you know. And he told me who he was, but he couldn't talk because he was crying, you know. And, oh, wow. and uh, he came to tell me that he would be the physician in charge of my care. And um, so the next day, he didn't show up until that afternoon. Um, he came to my room and I asked him and I, you know, I said, are you all looking, you know, and by, by this time I was losing my voice. So everything I was saying was more, you know, of a whisper. And I asked him, I said, are you discharging me tomorrow? And he said, absolutely not and mm. he said i have instructed them not to call you so um he said i will be the one who will determine when you will be discharged so he said uh let's put all that aside he said i'm very concerned about you know your labs by this time my labs were just wacky and um we talked a little bit and I, I remember telling him, please, please, you know, whatever you do, please just save me. Just save me. I want to live. I'm not done. Please save me. And he said, yes. He said, I'm not God. He said, but I will do everything as a physician to save you. And he left. Mm. And after he left, that by now we are into Wednesday. Okay. My condition just started going downhill after that. Mm. Uh, my fevers continued, um, despite the Motrin, despite, you know, the, the, the tepid baths that they did, despite any kind of intervention, they could not get my fever to go down. And when it did, it went down for maybe an hour or so, and, um, it would come right back up. So, and this is the nature of the virus. Cause correct. you were saying like nothing there was no like medicine or treatment that could reverse it at that point. At that time, correct. Yeah, at that time. At that time. And wow. um, so needless to say, I, you know, I, they had to increase my oxygen. 
my oxygen kept going up and down, but starting that day, that Wednesday, my oxygen stayed at 10 liters. Um, and I, you know, the headaches were so awful that they had to put me on morphine drip. Mm. Um, they were concerned about blood clots. So I would get a Doppler study done every day. Uh, but you know, Milana, and I have what's to say that I'm sorry, <laughs> you have any clots and if the clots are traveling to your lungs, um, okay. because they could not wean my oxygen and I was so short of breath. So they mm. were worried about that. Um, I have to say, you know, um, six months prior to me getting sick, I happened to have a conversation with my husband and I said, you know, I think we are, we are of that age where, um, we need to take an aspirin every day, you know, to prevent mm. any kind of, you know, cardiac issues or heart attack. I mean, we need to start taking an aspirin a day. And I had started taking aspirin, one aspirin every day. And I, I really think that helped me because um, when I was in the hospital and they were worried about blood clots, I was getting the Lovenox shot and, um, they could not wean the oxygen, so they would take me for all these scans. And when my condition would de deteriorate, um, they would, and they would call a rapid response. They would run with my entire, with my bed, with me in the bed to get all these scans and, and bring me back to the room. Mm -hmm. I was in a specialized COVID unit in that yeah. hospital. So they, they tr try to treat their COVID patients as much as possible with all the interventions on that unit versus having to take me, you know, to the ICU. So um, they were concerned about they were concerned about the blood clots. My organs started shutting down. Wait, I uh, one quick clarifier: you said you're sure that the daily aspirin that you've been taking starting six more since six months prior helps. How exactly did that, how, how, what's the correlation there between the aspirin and the, the blood clot issue that you were dealing with? So, you not know, dealing with. right. So, you know, they say that aspirin prevents blood clots or any kind of, um, you know, heart attack and cardiac issues. Okay. So, so yes. So I, I really think that that helped me. Um, I may be wrong, but I, I sincerely believe that that was what mm. really helped in terms of me developing any kind of blood clots. Wow. So then Wednesday, we're still on Wednesday when your organs start to fail. Right. And my labs were off. I remember them coming into my room several times, drawing blood work after blood work. Um, <clears throat> they told me that my um, kidney function, the, the numbers were off. Um, I, and by this time I was not eating or drinking anything. I hadn't eaten or, or, or had anything to drink since Saturday. Um, the IV fluids were going in and that was all I could get. And I remember, um, the nutritionist, uh, calling me on, on Wednesday and she said, I'm very concerned about you. You have not eaten since Saturday is what I am told. And, um, I need for you to have some protein. Um, and the next thing I know, you know, as I was talking to her, they came with a plate of food and on that plate, there were different kinds of meats and I am a vegetarian. Mm. So of course, when I, when I saw that plate of food, I became very nauseated and I actually vomited. And mm. when I did, 
um, you know, uh, she asked me, she said, are you, are you throwing up? And I said, yes, yes, I am. And I said, I don't eat meat. Mm -hmm. And she said, you don't eat meat. Uh, she said, what can I get you? You, you, you really need to have some proteins. And by this time I really didn't have any appetite, but yeah. you know, I said to her, I said, I'd love to have some oranges and, and cantaloupe. And she said, okay, but that's not protein. That's not protein. Said, that's not protein. But I said, if I can have the, the oranges and cantaloupe, I think I'll be okay. Yeah. And do you know, I think it was my Daniel diet that did, <laughs> <laughs> that, that really helped me. And I, and you know, when I got to the point that I could not, you know, even feed myself, the nurses would come and they would you know, cut up the oranges and they would cut, cut it up in little pieces and they would actually feed me. They would put wow. it in my mouth, you know, and they would say just, just a few pieces and try to chew it up, you know? So, yes. uh, so I have to say the nurses were just, just incredible. And, and I, I, I have no doubt. I, I really have no doubt that, you know, the, the, nurses that took care of me were angels because mm. those nurses knew of, of my faith. You know, they knew how much I love God. And um, I know that they would tell me, they, they would walk in the room and they would tell me that they heard from some friends about, you know, my religion and, and who I was. They heard a lot from my husband, who I was. <laughs> and um, they would come into the room and they would sing for me. They would wow. play and they would tell me to fight. But this set of nurses on that first Sabbath that I was admitted in the hospital, by this time I was really critical and I, I, I really wasn't aware of too much. I, I did have some periods of mental clarity is what I call it. And I remember that Sabbath, um, these two nurses walked in and it was eight o'clock in the morning and they told me happy Sabbath. And, you know, I couldn't really say much and my tears were flowing. They took my vital signs. My temperature was up. And at that time, Alana, I don't know if you remember, but I had long hair, you know, and they started brushing my hair hmm. and they started talking to me. I couldn't talk much. And when I tried to talk, you know, they would say, it's okay. It's okay. We'll talk. We'll talk. And my tears just kept flowing. And they said, we know it's your Sabbath. And I, I think I tried to math, are you Adventist, you know? Mm -hmm. And they said, no, they were not Adventists. One was a Baptist. I think the other one was Methodist. And they sang, they brushed my hair. They sang for me. And as they bathed me in bed um, and they tried to give me tepid baths to bring my temperature down, um, they sang to me and this one song that they sang, the Lord is my light and mm. my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Whom shall I fear? And you know, till this day, that has become one of my favorite, all time favorite songs. And as they sang to me, you know, they sang different songs, but that particular song, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Wow. I, I cried the entire time. And, and, you know, they, 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 the way they sang, I, I, I keep saying that they were angels. They were mm. angels who were present that day and pretty much every shift or every time that I had a new nurse, they would come and sing to me and, and just pray for me. 
and was just incredible. It was just incredible. Wow. So when did you start to take a turn for the better? So at this point, you'd been in the hospital, you were admitted Tuesday, right? On that Tuesday. Tuesday. And now we're talking about that following Sabbath. So after that, did things start to get, how long until things started to get better for you? While you were still in the hospital? Things started taking um, a turn for the worse throughout I remember celebrating my birthday that following Tuesday, May the 5th in the hospital. And that was the worst day. Uh, I was very critical that day. Um, I believe things started taking a turn for the better the following Saturday. Wow. Before Mother's Day, because Sunday was going to be Mother's Day. And Saturday was when they were able to wean me down to six liters. And, um, by this time, by Friday, I was asking to be discharged, and I was told that they would not discharge me. Um, by Saturday, why, why did you want to be discharged? Well, I wanted to be home with my family, and you see, Milan, you know, I had plenty of time to think of a lot of things. You're mm-hmm. laying in bed all day and all night, uh, hallucinating in and out of consciousness. And when there was some period of mental clarity, I, I didn't know whether I was going to live or die. And I wanted to be close to my family, even if it meant being able to just see them one more time from a distance, Mm. you know, and my husband, on the other hand, was also dealing with his own roller coaster of emotions, as he would later tell me, Um, he would call the hospital in the morning, and they would tell him, um, oh, she's doing good. And then by 11am or so, they would say, she's taken a turn. um, for the worst, she's going downhill. By 2 p.m. he would call or they would call him and they would say, you know, she's still not stable. And then by 6 p.m. it would be, oh yes, she's improving. And by midnight it would be, Mm. oh, we've stabilized her. And then he would call again at 6 a.m. and it would be like, "Uh, she's crashing, we can't talk right now, we'll call you. And um, And he can't come in person at all. No, no. And um, it just continued that way every day. And on my birthday, May 5th, when I was barely able to move, I I really was deathly ill. I remember at 7 a.m., one of the nurses, you know, coming in, she brought me a bouquet of uh, flowers and she said to me, guess who delivered them? And, you know, again, by this time I I wasn't speaking and I I looked at her, my tears were flowing. And she said, you know, your husband, your husband, Mm. these flowers are from your husband. And he told me to wish you a happy birthday. And, you know, I I, I really, I I could not talk. So I I think I mouth, you know, something to, is he here? And Mm. she said, she said to me, she said, "Uh, yes. He, he was here. I went downstairs to, you know, get these flowers from him. And it was like he almost followed me and I told him he couldn't follow me. And she said to me, you know, she said to me, if you want to see your husband again and if you want to see your family, you have to fight. And um, my husband would also text and call and he would say, you know, if you want to, if you get strong enough to be discharged, I want you home. I'll take care of you. I want you home. So for me, it was mm. the longing of being around uh, you know, people that you love around your loved ones that really made me decide that I wanted to get out of the hospital. Wow. Okay. 
So how many days in total were you in the hospital before you were discharged? Because you, you were discharged on Mother's Day, right? So that was almost, what, two weeks? Okay. Okay. So you asked to be discharged on Mother's Day and you were sent home with oxygen, correct? I was sent home on six liters of oxygen and I did sign myself against medical advice. Mm, okay. Okay. So you get home and I'm, I'm having trouble imagining or thinking what liters of oxygen look like. I know what the oxygen tanks, is that what it is when you see those, um, those tanks that sometimes people wheel or no? Right. So you have the big uh, concentrator that they deliver to the home and then you have the portable yeah. tanks that, that they, you know, that you use when you travel around. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, six liters. I usually they send patients home on two, three, four liters at the most, but I was at on um, six liters of oxygen. Wow. So you they were like maxed out. Right. Uh, they like to wean the oxygen down to at least two at the most, maybe three or four liters before a patient is discharged. Wow. And then how long were you using those six liters? So I was using the six liters for several weeks. And, um, you know, over, over, I, I actually, I'll be honest with you, I tried to wean myself off. So I would remove the nasal cannula and I would become very uh, short mm-hmm. of breath. So immediately I would put the, the uh, oxygen back on. And I knew that I, it was not time for me to um, wean myself. So I was on six liters of oxygen for several weeks. And then I weaned myself down to four liters for quite a while. Um, so I was on oxygen for a couple months, for a couple months. And, you know, they call us long haulers. So my recovery um was in initially it was pretty slow um I, I was on the oxygen for several months yes wow okay <laughs> this is this is a lot it is it it is <laughs> that's in, okay so for a lot of months so you have not did you did you when did you return to work or did you, were you expected? So what's going on on the work side? Do you know if any of your other colleagues had also contracted COVID-19? I found out later that some others had also contracted COVID-19 and I also have some colleagues who passed away. Oh uh, my goodness. COVID-19. So I consider myself very blessed. Um, I, and I still, and I say that because, um, and, and I know I repeat myself when I say that God is not done with me. Um, and I, I truly believe that. And I believe that there is a reason that um, I am where I am today. Um, and so I am so grateful. Um, so in, in regards to my recovery, mm-hmm. I was home for a couple of months. I even worked from home with, with oxygen on. I could not uh, really get on the phone talking to my patients for as long as I wanted to because I was, I would get very short of breath. So I, I had a lot of wonderful colleagues who supported me and did part of my work, um, but I did return to work with the oxygen on. Wow. Okay. So in the midst of all of this, um, you know, you're fighting for your life, your husband, is going through the imaginable, not being able to see you, only able to get updates from your providers. But you had people, you've told me you had people who 
while you were going through this, doubted that you had COVID-19. They knew you were sick, but doubted the, the, the disease, the virus as a whole, but just thought you were very sick, but didn't have COVID-19. Can you describe what was that like when people in your own community doubted what you were experiencing? Well, you know, I, I would say that there are people who then, and even now, you know, consider COVID a hoax. And so Mm -hmm. uh, I knew of people and I even had friends and I'm talking about Adventist friends that I knew who were of that um, mindset. Um, So I had a lot of people that initially did not reach out to me. Some still uh, do not acknowledge my illness or the severity of it. To this day. Till till this day. Mm. While there have been others um, that have called, um, texted, and I've had a few that have even um, been brave enough to visit me, but in a Mm. very generic manner. I, you know, on the other hand, am very vocal and quite transparent about my experience. Wow. So you were also... And aside and aside, supported by a network of Jewish healthcare providers. Um, can you also talk about how this other community, how you were embraced and supported and cared for by another set of people whom you had a relationship with? Well, you know, I have done work with various Jewish organizations, especially in the field of um, hospice care in Montgomery County. So I have to say that because of my work uh, with the different organizations, you know, um, they had been extremely supportive in different ways, pretty much making sure that my health, overall care and wellness, you know, was a priority in my recovery. So um, I have to say that um, in regards to the aftercare, um, I was blessed than most um, to have had that kind of support. Yeah. And how did you just briefly, how did you get into hospice care? aside from your, um, what you did for normal. uh, Yes. So, you know, I got into it to honor my mother who, Mm. um, had passed away, uh, several years ago and she was in, um, hospice care for about almost, um, four or five years. Mm. And, um, I was able to witness the compassion, um, and the care that hospice provided. And, um, I pretty much went into, um, doing what I do with the community uh, in her honor. Got it. Wow. Wow. So you've already spoken of how you reached out to uh, your local pastor and you knew like your local church family had been praying for you, but your relationship with the Adventist church hadn't always been in that manner, as you described to me, where you would, um, you know, willfully reach out or um, lovingly embrace in, in a, a local church community. Can you describe how that perspective changed? I know there was like an arc, um, a period of several years in your life where you were not involved with the Adventist church. Can you briefly talk about 
how that uh, shift happened for you. So, uh, you know, I, I, I really want to put out there, um, Milan, that, you know, during my illness, I, I, along with my family, were very blessed to be part of a wonderful, wonderful church family in Emmanuel Brinklow, Seventh-day Adventist Church. Uh, I have to say, when the news of my illness spread, you know, the, the church family just came through in terms of prayer and just supporting my family uh, and, and myself. So I, I have to say that we were really humbled, you know, to witness the genuine concern from the church family. Um, but going back to your question, um, mm -hmm. I grew up a third generation Adventist and um, Adventist and Adventism, you know, was always ingrained in me. I, I never doubted um, the beliefs or doctrines of the church. Um, the seventh day Sabbath is um, and was, is, and always mm -hmm. will be for me pretty much. My perspective of Adventism, I have to say, was more of a disappointment in what I experienced considering the tremendous focus of the church, you know, on winning souls to Christ and practicing what Jesus taught and being more like Jesus. The practicality mm -hmm. of all that um, hit me hard when I met my husband about 30 years ago. Um, I had decided to bring him to church, uh, bring this unbeliever, a non-Adventist. My husband was Baptist at that time. My husband is also African-American. Growing up, you know, I heard many sermons preached on um, 2 Corinthians 6.14, where Paul states, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers and do you mm. know i was lectured on um based on that verse by so many family friends and people in the church um and i i will have to say that all it took was that one sabbath of bringing my unbeliever husband to church um he wasn't my husband at that time so I physically stopped attending church for almost 10 years, but during that time, I did not abandon the faith that I had in Adventism. I just stopped going to church. Hmm. But I think that is a story for another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and to just like, like briefly, cause you mentioned, you know, how, yes, he was a Baptist, but you mentioned um, that he's uh, African-American. And for those who may be listening to this and don't see this, you are Indian-American. So bringing in a Black American Correct. to it, I'm, I'm assuming this was a majority Indian-American um, congregation. Can you like, just briefly describe like what was it about bringing a, a Black American with you that caused that to stand out? Oh, when you talk about the societal um, acceptance, uh, and, and, and again, I think um, the mindset has changed, or maybe it hasn't. I don't know. I can't speak mm -hmm. to that. But back then, you know, I was brought up, and I, if you want me to be honest, um, I will say it. Uh, I was brought up with the mindset of white is right and you will bring home an Indian or a white, hmm. you know? So I think it was a shocker for 
a lot of the people in the Indian community who um, knew me, who knew my family, um, to bring home an Ameri African American gentleman. And um, I think in time, the family and, and friends got to know um, my husband for the person he was or he is. And I think that, and I use this word mentality, um, changed. Mm -hmm. But um, I was so young at that time when I met my husband. I was 18. My husband was 31. And for a young uh, girl who grew up in the faith, who grew up in the church, um, we talked about, we, you know, we talk about wanting to go to heaven and in heaven there is no color and in heaven we all are going to live like one big family with god and um i questioned that a lot that if we cannot live like one big happy family here on this earth and we cannot be accepting of one another how are we going to do that in heaven so hmm. i think that bothered me for a very long time yeah Wow. Wow. Your story is just incredible. So even though you had stopped attending church, like you said, you hadn't lost the faith. I just want to know what brought you back around, um, back into the Baptist church, who or what influenced that for you and your husband? Well, you know, I, I um, had a very dear friend uh, that we worked together in the NICU uh, who was also who also happened to be Adventist, and she knew of my story, and I knew of her story, and um, she had been through different um, challenges in her life, and just like me, she never lost faith in the church, and she faithfully kept going to church, and she would tell me, you know, um, why don't you come back to church? Uh, you know, why don't you come to my church? And at that time, she invited me to come to Emmanuel Brinklow. And I don't know why, but I, I did not um, accept her invitation. I ended up going to CPC. And my husband and I went That's, to- That's um, Community uh, Praise Center in right. Northern Virginia. Right. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, thinking nobody's gonna know us and we're just gonna, <laughs> you know, sneak in and out. And, you know, um, I decided to go to CPC. And before I went to church that Sabbath, I remember talking to God and I said, Lord, if you want me to return back, to, to church and if you really are God um, you know I, I've never doubted you and I don't want to doubt you um, but if you really want me come back to church then let them sing nearer my God to thee <laughs> and would you know it Milan as my husband and I got out of the car and we were walking to the church um, I remember the choir was standing up and the church was packed and they were singing nearer my God to be. Wow. 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 And that did it for me. That did it. That did it. Wow. That did it. So to start to wrap this up and you've mentioned this throughout, but I just want to ask this directly about the role your faith played throughout this, um, year or more, you know, year plus of your recovery. I just, I'm curious to know, you know, even with the nurses singing and you said you felt the presence of, you know, them as angels and, um, you know, all this, did you ever lose faith? Did you ever want to give up? And if you had those moments, how did you lean on your faith to propel you 
and to keep you as you fought for your life? Well, you know, I was so ill and physically, yes, I wanted to, it got to the point that I did want to die. But I will say this to you, um, I, I love the Lord and throughout my illness, um, even though I felt there were times that life was fading from me, um, just like the thief who hung by Jesus side, I wanted to be mm -hmm. sure, you know, that I would be with Jesus in paradise. Um, mm -hmm. Through it all, it was all about, you know, not my will, but thine be done, pretty much. Um, it was because of this faith that I had in God, um, you know, that you alone are God, that if, that I believe that you alone are God, that if my time on this earth was going to end, then it was his will and if he it was his will that he allowed me to live then he's not done with my life on this earth so mm -hmm. i was also very blessed to have had a mother who lived her life you know trusting god and when you live right and do his will god will never leave you and and you know if you walk the dark valley uh, he will be right there beside you if you trust in him. So for me, you know, I, I, I never lost that faith and I was prepared and I was at peace either way. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing your profound and powerful story. Are there, is there anything else you would like to add to this? I mean, you've already shared so much and shared so richly and transparently. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add? Well, I, 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 I would just say, you know, that with so much going on in this world, God is still faithful. There is um, so much hurt, sadness, uh, grief with the pandemic and other events of the last year. But I will say God knows how much each of us can bear, even when we feel he is quiet, he is right there. So I would say, trust him. Amen. What better note to end on. Thank you so much. Thank you, Milan. Thank you for listening and watching this episode of News Points on the Air, a production of the North American Division of Seventh-day Adventists. This program is edited, produced, and hosted by me, Milan Medley. The executive producers are Dan Weber, Julio Munoz, and Kimberly Moran. Graphics are by Jonathan LaPointe. Listen and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Leave five-star ratings and write a glowing review. Speaking of subscribe, you must subscribe to News Points. It's our weekly digital newsletter, and it's award-winning, if I may add, award-winning by the Associated Church Press. It's your one-stop shop for keeping up with the North American Division. Simply go to nadavenist.org, excuse me, nadavenist.org, then click on news. If you need to reach me, send an email to ontheair at nadavenist.org. That's ontheair at nadavenist.org. Thanks for checking out this episode. We'll see you next time.